It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, April 8th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, health leaders continue to address vaccine hesitancy. And most states don't have a sales tax on groceries, but Alabama and Mississippi do, and that money could go a long way for low-income residents. Then in our book club, one of the country's largest collections of children's literature can be found at the University of Southern Mississippi. Now, there's a book about all those books. Plus, the Attorney General's office teams up with the Secret Service to fight cyber fraud. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Doctors with the Mississippi Department of Health and the University of Mississippi Medical Center are working to dispel myths about the coronavirus vaccines. The efforts are part of a targeted approach to increase vaccinations within communities of color. During the early stages of the pandemic, Black and Native Mississippians were hit disproportionately hard by the virus. Since the vaccine rollout, two major challenges have emerged in the attempt to inoculate communities of color, access and hesitancy. Dr. Shikozi Adema is director of Office of Health of uh, the Office of Health Equity at MSDH. He says the state has made steps toward addressing those issues. Access was a huge issue for a lot of different folks. Um, when you talk about 75 and up and how many individuals that just did not have the capacity to utilize a computer and, and sign up for appointments online or for those individuals that don't have access to computers or family members that can do it for them. Um, utilizing the call center and having um, to wait long waits on the call to, in order to book your appointment. And in other parts where it was just different communities where they just did not have a provider in their community um, or transportation to go to a site. So a lot of those different things we've been trying to address um, in, in these different ways. The other issue that we have to solve is in uh, making sure that people understand um, the safety as well as trying to uh, address any type of hesitancies that occur in our various communities, whether um, it's a black community mistrust or if it's the Hispanic community as well as mistrust, but in a different way, whether it's um, their, their mistrust of being able, being deported or and so on and so forth and all those different things when we talk about immigrants and things of that nature. 
And so um, there's a lot of work to be done. And it's um, it's it takes the entire community to work on this, not just the, the health department, not just um, UMC is not, not just, you know, um, health care providers, but also the community members getting information out there, but also being willing to go out there and, and not only protect yourself, but just your family and your community as well. To dispel myths at the root of much of the hesitancy, doctors Ardarian Pierre and Sonia Shipley gathered with other health professionals and community leaders for a virtual session on the benefits of vaccines. One prominent concern they addressed is the vaccines were developed too quickly to be safe. Dr. Shipley says that's not true. That is not the case. The FDA is using the, the same standards that it has used for decades. There have been no shortcuts taken whatsoever in ensuring the safety of these vaccines. Nothing has been skipped. Uh, in fact, there are two very important committees. Uh, you'll see the acronyms there, the VRPAC and the ACIP. And those committees are comprised of various uh, scientists, physicians, stakeholders, uh, folks who have a vested interest in keeping everybody safe. And so the whole process has been vetted all along. Dr. Pierre says the two-dose vaccines are 95% effective at reducing transmission of COVID-19, two weeks after receiving the second shot. She also says the vaccine doesn't infect people with the virus, another common misconception. There's no complete virus in the vaccine. So only messenger RNA fragments, and this does not become a part of your DNA. It kind of works to help your body um, recognize COVID-19 if it were introduced and be able to fight and prepare, recognize it and, and build an immune system, immune response to it. So you may have symptoms very similar to COVID-19, but again, the vaccine does not give you COVID-19. You could already be infected with COVID-19 when you take the vaccine or get infected between doses. So if you were to experience any symptoms around the time of being vaccinated or before your second dose or even up to two weeks after your second dose, again, you could have been um, exposed to the virus prior to you being um, immunized. The myth-busting also waded into the more conspiratorial fringes of hesitancy. Dr. Shipley says despite what some might read on the Internet, the government is not using vaccinations as a means to track people. If the government wants to track us, they have much easier ways to do it other than developing multi-trillion dollar nanotechnology to inject into your bloodstream. You have a very easy tracking device on you at all times, probably. It's called a cell phone. Mm -hmm. COVID-19 vaccination is not a method by which the government is trying to track any of us. If you are truly worried, turn off your phone. My husband's a sheriff's deputy. He said if you stick it in a Pop-Tart wrapper, the foil is supposed to block the signal. I don't know how true that is, but if you care... Turn it off and stick it in a Pop-Tart wrapper. Shipley added that the myth the vaccines change the body at the cellular level is is false. She says they aren't sure how long the vaccines are effective. Studies suggest about six months. Shipley adds it's still important to wear a mask. 
Coming up, most states don't have a sales tax on groceries, but Alabama and Mississippi do. And that money could go a long way for low-income residents. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On the next Creature Comforts, we celebrate National Wildlife Week, which is April 5th through April 9th, with head naturalist for the National Wildlife Federation, David Mizuzuski. As always, Dr. Troy Major, he's going to be ready for your pet questions, and Libby Hartfield wants to know about your latest brushes with nature. So make sure you tune in to Creature Comforts coming up at 9 right after Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. And don't forget, subscribe to the podcast using any podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Politicians on both sides of the aisle in Mississippi and Alabama have been trying and failing to cut the grocery tax for over a decade. It's a sales tax that impacts low-income families the most, and the majority of states don't have it. Mississippi's latest attempt to slash it failed when the legislative session ended last week. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports on why the tax is so hard to get rid of and how Louisiana did it. To understand why grocery taxes hurt low-income families more, let's look at two Birmingham shoppers. First, Ernestine Orr. She's got a cart loaded with collard greens and neck bones at a Birmingham Piggly Wiggly. She paid an extra $5.63 in sales tax on this trip, money she could do a lot with. But she doesn't dwell on it. If I want to eat, I got to pay the tax. Shopper two is Amber Dixon. She's packing her eggs and milk about 10 miles away outside of Publix. She paid four seventy-four in sales tax. Oh, it means a lot. It, it really means a lot, but... You know, that's that's what we have to do to, to get what we need. Dixon and her husband make about $80,000 a year combined. So for her, no grocery tax would mean an extra item in her shopping cart. Could have got another gallon of milk or another bag of potato chips or even another case of water. But Ernestine Orr makes a lot less money. So for her, those extra dollars every trip make a bigger difference. I could take it and help, help her on another bill. Like on this high uh, light bill, <laughs> light bill, water bill. Oof. Yeah, this this really hurts. Norbert Wilson is a professor of food and economics at Duke University. And it hurts in a way that would hurt more than someone with a higher income who food is a small part of their, their overall budget. That's why most states don't charge sales tax on groceries meant for cooking, from salt to pork chops. Now, people don't have to pay taxes if they get food through federal assistance programs like SNAP. But SNAP rarely covers all of a person's groceries. Plus, Wilson says lots of low-income Americans are left out of the program. For those people who are outside of that system, who are needing that support, they're paying this grocery tax. Those are the individuals I'm most concerned about in this. Alabama, Mississippi, and South Dakota are the only states that still tax groceries at the full rate. Part of the reason it's so tough for those states to ditch the grocery tax, it raises a lot of money. In Alabama, it sends about half a billion dollars a year to the state's education fund. Politicians just can't agree on how to replace those dollars. But Louisiana managed to make that change back in 2003. And the man who made that happen was former state lawmaker Vic Stelly. Everyone liked him. And everyone knew he was going to be paying more taxes, too. 
That's Greg Albrecht, the chief economist with the Louisiana legislature. Steli died in 2020 from COVID-19. He managed to not only cut the grocery tax but pay for it, and he did it with an income tax hike. If you're at the higher end on the income scale, you were paying more tax. I paid more tax, and he had to go basically convince those people in the upper half of the income scale that it was the right thing to do. It was worth it. But it didn't last. In 2008, Louisiana got rid of a key part of the Steli plan. They eliminated the income tax increase that covered the grocery tax. That led to a budget hole, which lawmakers eventually solved by raising the sales tax on just about everything except food groceries. The sales tax went up on lots of other things at the supermarket. In your grocery basket, will be a lot of things that are not food, right? Cleaners. Soap, etc. If it's not for home consumption, it's taxed. It's not clear if low-income families are actually saving money today. So that's the challenge for Alabama and Mississippi: finding a way to cut the grocery tax without hitting wallets somewhere else. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha. This story was produced by the Gulf States Newsroom, a collaboration between Mississippi Public Broadcasting (WBHM) in Birmingham, Alabama, WWNO in New Orleans, Louisiana, and NPR. Coming up in our book club, one of the country's largest collections of children's literature can be found at the University of Southern Mississippi. Now there's a book about all of those books. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedies, relatively speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The University of Southern Mississippi houses one of the largest collections of children's literature in the country, and we have Lena Degrumman to thank. Spending most of her adult life as a librarian in Louisiana, Degrumman was forced to retire at age 65, but she was offered a job teaching children's literature at Southern Miss, and in an effort to reward her hardworking adult students, began soliciting materials from children's authors and illustrators around the U.S. Carolyn J. Brown is one of the Editors of the new book, A Degrumman Primer: Highlights of the Children's Literature Collection. She says Degrumman never intended to start a collection. She started writing authors and illustrators, just handwritten letters. This is in 1965, and she knew a lot from her years of being a librarian. And she started writing them and asking them to send her anything that she could just share with her students, just like show and tell. She didn't have a collection really in mind, but after a year of collecting things, she realized she had the basis of a collection, and started writing in 1966 a more official letter to authors and illustrators, and it became the Degrumman Collection. And I want to talk about this letter because,、um, as the book illustrates, there were two lines in that letter which. Made the authors and illustrators more amenable for sharing their work, and one of them was 
that their collection would be made available to all children. This was during the Civil Rights Movement. When, right. When the word all was very significant or would be significant to many of these writers and illustrators. Exactly. She wrote in the letter, I am trying to build an outstanding collection of children's books, grades 1 through 12, to serve the librarians and teachers and through them the children, all children of Mississippi. And that did speak to a lot of these writers that she was contacting because they were hesitant to send their material to Mississippi. Some were fine and enthusiastic, but others not so much. And the one letter that I found in my research was from a a writer, Arthur Klein, and he said, there is one other question of much importance to me personally. Your letter emphasizes the phrase, all children of Mississippi. I could not in good conscience make presentations of material that has been so important in my working life if it were to be maintained in a collection inaccessible to teachers or pupils on the basis of skin pigmentation, religious preference, or backgrounds, or ethnic differences. I would not want even the husks of my books repose under unsegregated conditions. I would, he would want them under unsegregated conditions. And she assured him that that was indeed the case, that they would be seen by all children. Exactly. And I've, that's why I really make the case that I thought she was quietly through this letter writing campaign doing a lot for Mississippi. The other line that made a big difference, and I was surprised to read why, and you can explain, she mentioned that this would be a tax deductible gift. Right. Why was that so important? Well, they didn't realize that their work was of value, and it spoke to a lot of writers, even very well-known writers. I quote Madeline Langle, who had four children going to college, and she thought anything she could write off as a tax deduction would be helpful. How many, well, first of all, illustrators and authors are included? There are over... 1,400 authors and illustrators included in the collection, and there are over 185,000 volumes. Well, one of my very favorite writers, illustrators, is H.A. Ray, who, of course, is the creator of Curious George, and the fact that he is so well represented in this. And not only that, but he drew a special cartoon of George going to Hattiesburg. He was one of the first people to respond positively to de Grumman's letter. His letter was illustrated with a wonderful picture of Curious George making his way to Hattiesburg. And that's why some of these letters are treasures themselves. There are some gems in this book. Uh, One of my favorites is J.R. Tolkien declining to participate, but the way in which he declined is quite humorous. (laughs) That's right. So he sent two letters to the collection. And the first letter, on his letterhead, he forgot to sign it. And he's declining to participate, as you say. He says, I don't think I have anything I can send you right now, and I'm busy. And then a few months later, he realized he had not signed the first letter, and he sent the second letter and said, Moved by your plight, I will try to look for something. And I think he felt guilty for not signing the first letter. But ultimately, he never sent anything. Carolyn J. Brown is one of three editors of a DeGrummond Primer, highlights of the children's literature collection. And I thank you so much for being with us. 
You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Coming up, the Attorney General's office teams up with the Secret Service to fight cyber fraud. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. We are a Yucca Drive-In Theater. We're the last operating drive-in in the state of Mississippi. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Freak me out that you could come and drive your car and park and watch the movie outside. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app, Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. Hi, Larry Morrissey with the Arts Commission, reminding you to tune in for the Arts Hour. We have in-depth conversations with Mississippi artists, writers, musicians, and other creatives. The Mississippi Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 on MPB Radio or download it as a podcast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Cybercrime is on the rise in Mississippi, including wire fraud, ransomware, and use of cryptocurrency in illegal transactions. Now the state's chief legal officer is partnering with the Secret Service to target these crimes. Attorney General Lynn Fitch says her office will use this new partnership to prosecute the growing number of cybercrimes. This is a big day for Mississippi. Truly an opportunity for all of us to work together. We're so excited about this task force. So what does it really mean? It means we're going to go after these criminals. We have the ability to investigate these cyber crimes, to prosecute these cyber criminals, and to truly police the information superhighway. With the role being of the task force is to take these cyber criminals down. That will be our job. You know, this is a true and tried success model. It's happened across many other states and globally. And we're excited to have it in Jackson, in Mississippi. And together, it's going to be very successful here. We're all going to make a huge difference in the cybercrime threats that we all endure. The Attorney General's office has an existing division that addresses cybercrimes targeting minors. Charlie Rubisoff, Director of Investigations of Cybercrimes, says the partnership with the Secret Service has brought in new equipment for a digital evidence forensics lab. But uh, he tells our Kobe Vance the department will focus on fraud, but the expansion will allow for other investigations if needed. We'll be involved with a number of different crimes. So, of course, those crimes that involve the use of technology, uh, cybersecurity issues, but also a lot of just traditional crimes that now have an electronic nexus. So violent crimes, murders, rapes, that type of thing as well. And I see here you all have got like uh, several different, what looks like several different types of stations to address different, different types of materials. Um, uh, what, how are you all going to be attacking this? Oh, maybe you could clarify that for me a little bit. Yeah, sorry. Like, I see you got some stations that plug in some hard drives. I see you got like a little repair station over here in case of equipment's failing. Um, is that is that correct? Or? Yeah, I think you've nailed it. Uh, we do have a couple of dedicated sections in here. So behind you, you've got essentially what is a cell phone repair area. Uh, it also gives us physical access to things like circuit boards and storage devices so that we can extract data that way. And then, yeah, we've got some other areas that are dedicated to mobile device forensics, computer forensics, uh, online research, and that type of thing. 
And then uh, lastly, I see this big screen back here that's got all these dots and lines going across. Can you talk about what that what that means and uh, how that's helping? Sure. So uh, what we have back there is just a demonstration that's actually a uh, publicly available resource so that you can see different types of attacks that are occurring online at any given time. Uh, but the primary reason that we have the screen back there is so that when we bring in individuals that we're working with in the law enforcement community, we've got a way to brief them on what we've been doing and the findings of our investigative work. And, uh, you know, this is a contribution that the Secret Service has made to us, and we're very happy to have their support. I'm just curious, um, how, how prevalent do you think uh, cybercrime is here in Mississippi? So I've been here in the Cybercrime Division for over seven years, and like everywhere else right now, uh, it's very prevalent, and we're seeing an increase. Charlie Rubisoff is the Director of Investigations of Cybercrimes. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.